Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Take out your Bibles and turn to Ephesians 5. I think there's probably more kids in this service than last one, and I just want to highlight what Nathan said. We're thankful for that. It is a blessing that God would give us children. And of all people, Nathan's legit. Like, my boy Henry will talk to me during the service. I know that's going to happen back and forth here. It's okay if your kids do too. That's fine. Praise God they can sit under the teaching of the Word um, and see you doing it. And as we bear with one another, this is a good gift to each other as well. So let us be about not being like a village, but being the body of Christ to our children and continue to lift up Christ highly in front of them. Ephesians 5, 3, I also, with that statement being made, I did not plan to come to this text today. The Lord brought us to this text. Um, so you, are, might, you might have to start or at least continue some of the discussions with your children, what we're about to talk about. So I'm going to do my best to, um, not to make us a spectacle because Paul brings us to it, and it's right. So I'm just letting you know, I know what we're talking about, and so do you, and we're going to say some words here. It's going to get real, um, but it's right and good for us to do so. There's no better place for children to understand about what we're talking about today than from the church, than from Christian parents who love Christ and can speak the truth about this. So I, I ask you to prepare and uh, continue these conversations. I'm not going to try to let a whole bunch of cats out of the bag today, but we will talk and use real words, so just prepare that way. All right, Ephesians 5, 3 through 6. Let's read and then we'll pray together. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead... Let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let's pray together. Our great Lord, we humbly come to you, but at the same time boldly, Lord, to your throne, and we come only because of the finished work of our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. You have revealed yourself most perfectly through him. You've called us out of darkness into light. And by grace, O Lord, we, your children, are no longer dead in trespasses and sin, but we're made alive together with Christ. So we glory in our Savior, King, and we thank you for your great mercy and grace to supply for every one of our true needs. So we turn, Lord, now to the word to receive instruction, encouragement, to be rebuked and taught. Lord, we know, though, because of all the things that we've talked about already, our hearts can so easily be hardened. Our minds can wander, whether to lunch or the things of the week. Our desires can slide around, but God, we need you now to help us to be glad for the happy distractions, but Lord, that we would continue to understand your word and be renewed in the spirit of our minds. May we come to you now as thirsty travelers needing refreshment and sustenance. And Lord, would we receive your word by faith. Please use the preaching of the word this morning for your glory 
and good. In Jesus' name, amen. When we go from Ephesians 3 to Ephesians 4, we're making the transition. We're turning the corner, right, from the first three chapters of Ephesians to the second, the last three chapters of Ephesians. Four through six are all built on chapters one through three. You understand this because four, five, and six come after one, two, three. But conceptually, we know what's going on. He has been telling us who we are in Christ Jesus. The writing changes, though, now, and we're hit with all kinds of specific rules and commands. He's telling us that many of our old actions are incongruent with our true identity in Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, the way that we act must match up with who we are in Christ. At the center of this, I just want to point this out, is this beautiful doctrine called the unity or the union we have with Christ. It is unbelievable. It's mind-boggling that we are united with Jesus Christ, and his righteousness is now ours because of this. This is glorious and good. But Paul is saying, then you can't live like the old man. We are to become holy. He's declared us righteous in justification. He's actually made us holy in Christ. But now in our experience, we understand we are growing in righteousness. And Paul, once he gets into chapter four, five, and six, this is the road that he's ready to take to show us you can't just continue to call yourself a believer and live like an unbeliever, like you hate God, as though it doesn't matter what he has told us to tr what is true. The last time I preached from Ephesians, which is now three weeks ago, we covered verses one to two in chapter five. We opened up chapter five, and that really built off of chapter four. If you remember the beginning of chapter four, he started out by telling us to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Then he worked through showing us what it meant as he gave the church gifts, elders and pastors and teachers and apostles as he was building up the church. And then as he tells all of us to actually minister to one another. In other words, that we are supposed to care more about each other than ourselves. So when we get to chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it's really kind of a summary statement, taking all of chapter 4 and saying, do you know how this looks? It looks like imitating God. The specific way, walk in love for one another. This is how we are to build each other up. This is how we are to use our words and our actions to actually build up the body of Christ. In verse 3, Paul turns from the virtue of love that we saw in verse 1 and 2, an action that is ultimately concerned with the good of someone else, right, to the vice of lust, an action that is ultimately concerned with one's own self only, that's inward looking. He moves from talking about imitating God to a manner of life that is diametrically opposed to God, that cares only as me as God. I don't often stop off and do like a, a series or maybe like a topical sermon because I, I think things are going on in our congregation. We need to do that. Once in a while, I, I do that and I realize that I want to grow in that so that I would be led by the Spirit and do the right things to lead our congregation. But then there's sometimes where it just comes to us. I did not plan to be here. This is hard-hitting truth that speaks directly to us in our culture. We know this because if you turn on any sort of media, if you, whether it's scrolling through Facebook, whether it's through listening to the, a podcast or radio or watching a movie, or all the advertisements are surrounded by sexuality. Sex sells. We are told that this is the way that we express ourselves, we enjoy, and anything and everything is on the table. Whatever it is, this is a good thing, and it's almost, a, in, in some ways in our culture, a virtue, a good thing to be able to do this and do it freely. As we come to this, though, we realize our culture may thrive on sexuality, promoting anyone and everyone, 
But the problem is the culture in our world lies to us about the truth of God-given beautiful sexuality, exactly what it is. We don't have to be convinced, probably to go too far into this, to know that we all experience this regularly. We see the distortions, but it becomes more and more usual, normal, and we start to realize that that's just part of life. In the previous section, though, Paul exhorted us to consider how believing the deceitful lies of the world affects the way that we treat one another. But here, in this section, Paul is going to call us to consider how believing more of those deceitful lies actually affects our walk with God. The subject matter turns to sexuality, but instead of talking about how it affects one another, which he could have done, it would have been good, he picks up a deeper and more ultimate theme. He was going to pick up this thing and reveal a person's final destiny and who they belong to. Far more serious and long-lasting. There's a simple message for us today. I don't do this very often, but there's a very simple message that I boil down to one statement. I'll say it several times throughout the message, but this is it. Sexual sin, thinking falsely about sex, or talking falsely about sex has no place in the church whatsoever. Now I'll say it again. Sexual sin, false thinking about sex, and false talking about sex has absolutely no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Let me read verse three again, here we go. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or, hum, uh, no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now there's a lot to cover here, a lot of stuff going on, but it's leading us to understand the goodness of human sexuality as God created it, and the evil of distorted, self-focused sexuality that ultimately destroys us. Now, when we see this, parents, I admit, we're gonna be talking about lots of stuff, but I'm not gonna do, I'm gonna do my best not to be explicit or make this a spectacle, but we're gonna do our best to get to the heart of what Paul is saying here. I am in no way trying to make a spectacle of sexuality, but there is no better place, like I said before, than for us to hear from their pastor and from a Christian parent to talk about these things rather than the world telling them what this is all about. So uh, let this be a clear call for us to regularly teach our children in the way that God has made for us to understand the world and one another. And this is certainly part of Christian instruction and us as a body doing this rightly. I would encourage you to pray for guidance because it's not easy. I'll guarantee that's one of the things we probably avoid this mostly because it's difficult. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. So I'd pray for guidance, talk to other brothers and sisters, and be willing to speak the truth about biblical sexuality. All right, in verse three and four, Paul gives us a list of six things that Christians should not do. Uh, he says, he lists sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk and crude joking. But he doesn't just say, don't do these things. He's much more intentional and thorough here with his approach. He tells us that sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. To get this right, we need to break it down just a little bit. What exactly is he talking about in sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness? And what does he mean that these things shouldn't be named among them? Parents, don't worry, I'm not going to break all the different categories down for us here today. I'll allow you to do some of those things. But when Paul says sexual immorality, he is talking about a broad, comprehensive word that has very clear guidelines. 
Paul is referring to every act of sexual sin, any kind of sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage. There is a right standard for us, and it's much better, I think, for us to actually look at this. God has created a beautiful thing in sexuality, but this is to be made and part of the biblical understanding of covenant marriage, understanding what the Bible teaches to us, that one man and one woman committed to one another in the marriage relationship. This is the way that sex is supposed to join into human sexuality, not the way that we decide to do it on our own or with whoever but rather seeing this properly in the context of marriage. So just an easy way to kind of say this, when he talks about sexual immorality, it's everything outside of that, outside of the marriage relationship. He talks about all those different sins when he says this. He's referring to all of that. We could spend time again listing them, but I think it's better that we see that as the standard. Everything that's outside of that properly helps us to say that's out of bounds. That's not right. That's a distortion of the truth. He goes in then also to talk about impurity and covetousness. And this is where we realize that he's not only talking about a set of specific sins, but rather he's helping us understand that there's all kinds of variations here. And it's more important that we understand what surrounds and underlies these specific sins. He's going to say all impurity, again, as kind of like a broad category that helps us understand it's not just one of these activities. If there's like seven activities, if you do any of this, that you can't, you're out. This is sexual immorality. By saying all impurity, he talks about the preconceptions that we have about those things, our lusts, our thoughts, our imaginations, the things that would surround that, the things that we look at and consider. All these different things would be called impurity. Also, he continues on to say something that's even deeper than that. More than that, we really want to ask ourselves, where Paul's going is he's going to say, where does it come from? He's not just talking about these things and imaginations. He's trying to get down to the root. And he's not okay with us thinking what the world thinks. There's some sort of animal desire that we all have and we all have to make sure we get it taken care of in our own simple way. No, that's not the way he handles it. Paul gets down to the root of this when he calls out the third problem. He says sexual immorality all impurity, and then get this, he says, covetousness. Now, this is not a word that we use very often, but we do understand it. If you covet something, it's something that you want that is not yours. It's of someone else's. You want for yourself. Probably one of the best ways to describe this, just kind of a, a wooden, helpful translation of this, especially in our context, is to talk about a greedy lust a desire to fulfill yourself no matter how it affects another person. That's what Paul's talking about. He's trying to help us understand that it's the root problem way down deep inside of us that this is flowing out of. Truly to please not another person in love, but actually to please myself and call it love. Man, what a distortion of the truth. This is what Paul is getting at. Consider for a moment It's not just sexual desire, but a desire that sees others existing for their own, for my own sexual gratification. That's what's going on here. No matter how it affects someone else, that's okay. It's for me. Consider Exodus 20, 17. This is probably first where we really consider the command not to covet. Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Obviously, we can covet a lot of different things. 
Uh, you probably already know this already by heart. You already probably covet things. Some of you may covet someone else's looks. Some of you may covet their lifestyle. Some of you may covet different things, money perhaps, or fame, or maybe their hair is way better than mine, and you covet their hair. Here he's actually just getting into this one specific area to show this greedy, covetous lust after someone else for my own sexual pleasure. The astounding thing is he's not just talking to married people. He condemns all of us. It condemns a single person for their sexual immorality, the married person committing adultery, or even, get this, the married person who is technically faithful, but is full of covetousness. This strikes home to us. It's possible to be faithful, physically faithful, and yet be full of covetousness designed for what you want is actually just to fulfill yourself in the sexual marriage. This is wicked. It helps us understand it's much bigger than just the act that we would probably list out. This isn't what God made sexuality for. This is the wrong thinking. It's not true about what God made called sexuality. And Paul says that we should shun this activity, right? Well, actually, he doesn't say that here at all. He assumes that, and he goes further than that to explain that we ought to not have that named among us. He says sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that even by saying these words this morning that we are breaking this command? I mean that if you say the word immorality that you've gone too far, is that what Paul is trying to say here? Well, no. First of all, Paul is saying it also, we see him mention it in his letters over and over again, condemning these actions, warning Christians of the devastating actions both between them and God and one another. But you'll never hear Paul taking these matters lightly. You will never hear him joking about sexual immorality as though it's cool. He's not going to do that here. He always speaks of the actions for what they are, sin. Uh, when he says these things, must not even be named among you, he says two things. He's first saying that Christians should never practice these sins, that they should shun them, obviously. That's the no-brainer. We get that one. If you are involved in any kind of mental or bodily sexuality outside of marriage, so I mean both sexual lust uh, with your eyes and mind and sexual immorality with the rest of your body, stop. It's like a real easy one. Stop doing that. It's wicked. It's not in line with who God is and what he has made us to be. It must not be part of our life. This is not the, the good gift that God has made for us. This is the wicked distortion of that gift. It's not fitting for a Christian at all. If you look that in your ESV there, that last verse will say, as is proper among saints. That's a good translation. It makes sense, but I think it's a little bit better and a little more wooden, but the translation would be like, it is not fitting for Christians. These things are not fitting. They don't make sense for us because they don't line up with who God has made us to be. It's pretty clear then. We understand this. That's the first part. Christians should reject all sexual immorality. But second, he uses this particular verb, right? Uh, he doesn't just say, shun these things, stop these things, reject these things. He actually says, let it not be named among you. Not only should we reject these actions, Paul says that these sins shouldn't be named among us. Now, for a moment, if I can just have your attention for a moment, this is important. Um, let me make a brief comment. Paul did not say, don't let sex be named among you. He doesn't say that at all. He isn't condemning sexuality. It's not what he's doing here at all. In fact, in a minute, we are going to see quite the opposite. Paul is not telling us to avoid sex, 
but completely reject the missed understanding of it, the wicked part, that which would be distorted by the world for oneself. More on that in a minute. Now, he says, let it not be named among you. As I've worked through this all week, I assumed certain things and I tried to make them work, but the language does not allow us to get off as easily as I thought we could get off here. So let me explain. Um, I've always thought that this just meant that if people were to talk about the sins of Christians, that in the sins that Christians do, sexual immorality shouldn't even be named in the lists of those. Like, here are the list of sins that we struggle with as Christians, and oh, we don't want that one named in all of those. That's certainly true, but that is not what Paul is saying here. That's not what he's saying. It's, it's not just about association, although that's certainly part of it. Paul is saying that sexual immorality reveals that you and I are not rightly thinking about sex. We are misunderstanding God's beautiful intention and design for human sexuality. And it's so serious that Paul says that ta- talking about it, or as he says, naming it, the sexual immorality, as though it's okay, as though it's the norm, no problem, we're fine with this, even though if I, if I don't technically don't do it, he says that that's not right. We shouldn't be talking this way. Let me put it this way. Uh, to me, this is helpful. Kind of a progression here. He says that false sex must stop. That's sexual immorality. That's got to stop. Then he says, that's no place in church. He says that false thinking about sex, that also has to stop. You can't think the way that the world does about this. But then he's going to go even further to tell us you have to stop the false talking about sex. You're not treating this thing properly. You're speaking about it as though if I don't commit it, even if I kind of think about it, but like I can at least talk about it. He takes all that out of the picture for us. None of those things, doing, thinking, or talking about sex falsely is not right. We shouldn't do any of those things. And you may think for a moment, okay, Chris, I, I, I don't talk about sexual immorality, um, impurity, or covetousness, so I don't know why this is that big of a deal. Well, Paul is going to illustrate this a little better for us. Look at the next verse. He turns right to our speech. And more than that, it's wider than that, but at least speech. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. He's saying the filthiness must stop. Uh, This is about a conversation and behavior that doesn't care one lick about moral standards. Uh, It's kind of that talk that we would all quote as obscene, that which does not lend itself to not only Christ-likeness, but the truth about sexuality. Obscene talk is not something that we should be part of. It's talking about things coarsely that should really be handled with much care and reverence and joy. He then moves on, though, to condemn foolish talk is the next thing he says here. This is literally talking that is not filled with truth. He's going to actually come out later and says empty words here. It's the same idea. It's foolish. It's conversation that does not speak truth, but rather it's full of folly and merriment and uh, constantly lighthearted, almost like goofiness constantly, even about sex, like, ah, who cares about this kind of stuff? This light, foolish talking is condemned. We're not talking about it properly. Particularly here in our context, he's saying that this is foolish talk about sexuality. This is conversation that really is a waste, and it's not continuing to show the beauty of sex. Lastly, he gets the things that uh, I think that most of us can probably identify with if we're really honest. The words that he uses are crude joking. Now, most of us probably read that and think of like 
the talking of a dirty old sailor, like he can't use anything but cuss words for adjectives, and he's just constantly like, oh my goodness, I can't be around this person. Um, and, and that's a nice, and that might be, that's certainly part of this. I think we shouldn't let ourselves so easily off the hook, though, here. Let me explain. We all love witty comments, statements that are, have a double meaning, that are uh, clever, uh, puns that speak truth in an underhanded jab sort of way. Humor and puns and double entendres are fun. And they're actually, I would actually say that they're God-given. Humor is wonderful. But Paul is saying those jokes that take immoral sex lightly should not be part of what the church does at all. We should never be making light of sexual immorality. This would be crude joking or like risque, as though it's okay for someone who's not married to be engaged with someone else sexually. That's not funny. That's not okay. We shouldn't be making jokes about that kind of stuff or any of the other things that are under the umbrella of sexual immorality. That is not right for us. Paul says in verse four that these things are out of place. So if you were to ask me about this text, I'd say, yeah, I think that many of the risque jokes that we hear or tell uh, that make light of sexual immorality, most of them slowly dull our senses to the beauty and holiness of human sexuality. And the truth is, since they're not talking about it in the side of a marriage covenant, they are destroying God's truth. This is serious. I'd say then, I'd challenge you to think about how this affects you, how it affects your kids, how it affects the body of Christ when you partake in this kind of joking. It's not right. And it actually tears down the truth of who God is. So yes, he's certainly teaching about speech, but we really want to ask a little bit broader of a question. Is he only talking about that? Like his filthiness is not only like words. What else is he talking about? Is, what's Paul really getting at here? When the Ephesians read this letter, when they have it probably read in their congregation, or maybe when they send it to another place and they read about this, they know exactly what Paul is talking about. They know what he's concerned with. When you speak about immorality, even if you don't do it, here we understand that you are constantly fed a lie that becomes easier and easier and easier to believe, or at least be okay with. I would say the word, we, we kind of tolerate it. Like, oh, we understand, you know, that's, that's kind of okay. That immorality really is sex. It's just another person's version of it. And it's okay to kind of, you know, partake in these ways since they don't know any better and they think it's a love relationship, and that's fine, because that is kind of sex like that. It's just different than what we understand it to be, even though it's immoral when it's accord with the Scriptures. If I can just speak to you as a pastor right now, as your brother, thinking and talking about these sins creates an atmosphere in which they are tolerated and can even then be participated in. I think probably now we have enough parents in the room we are concerned with this, in my, in my very short time as a pastor, I've already seen this happen. I understand that we, we're like, it could never happen to us. Joking about it's not going to mean a thing. We denigrate sex when we joke about sexual immorality. And it continues to build in our own thinking and the thinking of our children the degradation of sex. And we start to think it's okay. And whether you believe it or not, it is affecting our children. And it will affect one another to the point that we tolerate sexual immorality. In verses 11 through 12, not only is it not okay to tolerate, he says expose this sin. Whew, 
This is real serious. It's not supposed to be joked about, not supposed to be tolerated, not supposed to just be part of your entertainment. It's just part and parcel of all of that. He says you're supposed to expose it. We'll talk about that when we get there. If we are willing to subject ourselves, though, and our children to the regular drone of what the world says about sexuality, we will continue to move closer and closer actually to thinking that it's okay and to believing the lie, to saying that this deceitful action is right and it's okay. This is actually not true, though. We move backwards from just even talking about sex to starting to believe that this sexual immorality is okay or something like that to the point, again, where we are somehow even getting close to engaging in something like this. This is wicked. And of course, it's not for us to say, let's be pious and just never do this kind of stuff. He's gonna address all this here as we get through it. But I would ask you this question then. What kind of sexually immoral content do you expose yourself to? This is hard. I'm not talking about pornography, that's clearly sinful. I'm talking about subtle ways that we imbibe our culture's false view of sexuality. In music, in news, in our movies that we watch, in the books that we read, in the shows that we would let regularly watch. We may think that these things are small potatoes, it doesn't really matter, it's okay if on the side of some of these things there's sexual immorality. It slowly is chipping away at us. The same is true about Scripture, the renewing of our minds. That is why you should read your Bible regularly, allowing it to continue to tell you the truth of the gospel, tell you the truth about who you are and who God is. I'm not laying down a specific standard for you, but Paul is. <laughs> so uh, you don't have to listen to me. You have to listen to him because he is spirit-inspired to give this to us. He says, filthiness foolish or empty talk about sex and crude joking about immorality is out of place for the Christian. It has no place in our lives. But there's more in this verse than just the rejection of immorality. That's enough. But look what he says here in the end of verse 4. I love this. Now, if I was honest, when I come to this point, I'm expecting something completely different. Right, because he says, he has told us that uh, sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among us, and that filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking are out of place. So I'm thinking, you're going to tell me to be pure, to be holy, to be righteous and clean and chaste and abstinent, right? That, that's what I'm thinking, like, be pure in all these ways. That is not what he says. Look at it. I love this guy, Paul. He goes instead and does this and said, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Instead of all that junk, that wicked understanding of sexuality, he says, let there be thanksgiving. In this one command, Paul tells us that instead of pining after something that isn't ours, instead of covetousness, instead of desiring to have the things that can fulfill me, 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 instead be thankful for what God has graciously given. This is an incredible statement because it takes our eyes away from me, me, me and points our eyes to Christ, to the God of the Bible that has revealed himself and given himself to us. It stops asking, what else can I get? And turns us rather to say, what have I been given? It takes both marriage and singleness and rejoices in God's good gifts. Now, I'm not going to expound on this subject because, again, we have a lot of young ears here in our midst, but... The gift of human sexuality within the covenant relationship of marriage is a wonderful gift of God. We should be smiling. It's great. We're thankful. 
It's exciting and pleasurable. It is a good and holy thing. But it is in the context of a committed relationship of marriage. No other place. So we should teach our children and one another what the truth is here. This is for that only. That's all this is for, only within that, that beautiful union that God has ordained. What a gift. We should be thankful for it. But if this is where our thanksgiving stops, what I mean by that is being thankful for sex, we've missed it. And we've missed it very badly. There are many times when even in a biblical, godly marriage, sex is not possible. We know that. I'd even say that there's sometimes that it's right. You better abstain from this because your partner cannot for one reason or another, or there, maybe they're away. There are good reasons to abstain from sexuality. I, I, but do you think that sex is the only thing that we ought to be thankful for? Of course not. That's ridiculous. I mean, I love delicious food and fun experiences and, um, you know, uh, taking great trips and seeing amazing things, all these things that bring pleasure. But also, I would not be lack of things to be thankful for if I weren't able to do any of those things or if I were to have a diet that was very simple the rest of my life and never delicious food. There is still much for me, even in common grace ways, to be thankful for. But it's even deeper than that, right? So we understand that there's only, even in this, this room right now, only some of us are actually doing this exact thing that he's talking about, true human biblical marriage that has a part of it as human sexuality. So what about for everybody else? They just have to pine away for that to happen someday, maybe, or maybe not? No way. God has given himself to us, and this is a deep well that if we think this is second rate, we've really missed it. This is the primary thing. The things that we enjoy, money and, and sex and good food and trips and seeing wonderful things, I, I don't know how else to tell you, but they are only pointers to the goodness and pleasure of knowing God. This is what we are to, it's not the right word, but pine after, desire and want, is God himself giving himself to us that we would know and be fulfilled, not only in eternity, although that's certainly true, but now with his grace to sustain in the midst of trial and difficulty. He's not just telling us to be thankful for physical, healthy marriage relationship. He's turning our eyes to God himself, the source of true joy and fulfillment. Now, this is funny because we all know, we probably know, the Rolling Stones song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. What an irony for someone like that to say that. A group who had all the acclaim, all the power, all the money, all the girls, they want all that stuff, and yet they write a song because they can't, else, they can't say it anywhere else, I can't get any satisfaction here. Now, as Christians, we understand that, and you're like, yeah, you can't. All this stuff is fleeting. All those wrinkles are coming and your money will go away. You have nothing here that will last. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we realize what I said at the beginning, that we have union with Christ. We realize that the treasure trove of heaven has been opened to us in Jesus. In Christ, we all have whatever we have need of. Even if it were just that the benefits of Christian living and an eventual inheritance someday, that would be enough. But again, God has made us one with Christ graciously giving us every spiritual blessing. We've been forgiven. We've been freed from our sin. We're not slaves any longer. We're not condemned. We've been redeemed. We've been made holy. We have been adopted into the family of God. Look to Christ then. In this moment, for, just to think, look to him and consider yourself and be thankful. 
And it's not about like, hey, you, grateful, you ungrateful wretch, be thankful. It's like, no, no, no. If you look and see who God is and all that he is and start reading the word and realize all that he is, you can't, there's no other response than worship and praise and thanksgiving for all that he has done for us. This is Paul's very uh, cheeky response. Be thankful. I love this, and it's right for us to do so. So I return to the beginning. I've stated my main point here. That this passage tells us that sexual sin, false thinking about sex, and false talking about sex has absolutely no place in the church. That the proper response to these temptations is to look to Christ and be thankful. But this is now... This is not how he ends the passage. There is a tremendous warning for us. These are not just a few good rules that Paul wants to mention and kind of move on from here. There are consequences both for obeying and disobeying in this area. The statement I made was this, sexual sin, false thinking about sex, and false talking about sex has absolutely no place in the church. But now I want to tell you why. From this passage, I see three reasons that sexual immorality, false talking about sex, and false uh, thinking about sex should have no place in the church. Number one, the people who practice these things have no inheritance in Christ's kingdom now and God's kingdom eternally. Paul says in verse five, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That cuts hard. I mean, Paul basically repeats the sins that were listed in verse 3 and says that anyone that does these sins has no inheritance in the family of God. And then he makes this important little side note after, if you notice the third one, he makes this connection for us. The reason that people have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God is because at the core, these actions are idolatrous. Now, we know what idolatry is. It means anything, we, we think of a little statue, anything that we'd worship other than God, right? Well, it's not just little statues. Obviously, it's like anything that we'd put in place of worshiping God and pleasing Him and loving Him alone. It's the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. What Paul is saying here is that we have put our own sexual gratification as a number one God that we are willing to worship. That that is what we worship. And that when you have this as your regular means of enjoyment, that this is how you operate you are an idolater. This is a serious, serious thing he's saying. They worship themselves. Their own pleasure, their own comfort, their immorality betrays their true loyalty. And it's not to God, but it's actually to themselves, to what they want. This is a devastating reality. Remember all the things that were given to us in chapter one for a moment. Paul started out by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's saying that if you are characterized by these wicked practices, then you don't get any of the family blessings that I just told you about. Uh, no election, no holiness, no blamelessness, no predestination or adoption as sons and daughters no forgiveness, no riches of grace, no sealing at the day of redemption. I mean, a person's whole life here that's marked by these sins receives no inheritance in the kingdom of God. But there's another reason here. The world's deceptive beliefs and practices about sex show that when they believe these things, what they're doing isn't real. What they're doing is the truth of God. They're rebelling against it, making their own truth, deciding to do it their way. And in so doing, they have denied God. 
This makes them, as this verse says, sons, or we can say daughters, of disobedience. I'll read for five and six again, but pay attention once we get to six. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. In other words, don't let anyone tell you something that's not true. What they're talking about, sexual immorality, it's not the truth. So he says, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the things that they are doing, that they say it's okay, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. If you and I and anyone understand sexuality by the world's standards, they are deceived. We are deceived. We're believing something that's not true. We're taking part in ignorant practices. And by the way, that pits us against God. He's the God of all truth. And we believe these things, it pits us against him. What a terrible place to be. I mean, to return to a place that we saw from chapter two led us dead and unresponsive. Let me read these verses. You remember this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, believing these lies about sexuality leads us back and reveals that we are actually sons of disobedience. That's bad enough, but even that isn't all. There's one final reason for us to consider here. Number three, I already said it, but in, in the verse, the verse said it, the wrath of God is coming against the sons of disobedience. In verse six, Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul is saying, warning, listen to me. This is so serious. If you are a son of disobedience, if you're not listening to what sexual immorality is, you are against God, you have no part in his inheritance and his wrath is upon you. This is a serious thing since God is all-powerful, eternal, almighty, and can like, do that and it's all over. Or he can choose to uh, give his judgment eternally in hell. This is a serious thing. It is weighty for us. These people have no place in the kingdom of God and we can be sure that God will punish all those who disobey him. I realize this is heavy. And if you're scared at this time or worried or trembling, we can be sure that we can be thankful to God because that's grace, understanding who God is. If you're here today, though, and you say, that's not the God I want. I want to make my own God. Friend, please, please listen. This is the truth of the Scripture, the revealed Word of God, that this is the God who is against those who do not listen or trust or obey. And as we sit here, we realize this is the God that we tremble from. Last, last week I, I came from Psalm 147. Do you remember what he said we should be like? He said he takes joy or pleasure in those who fear him. Here we go. But then he said one more thing. In those who hope in his steadfast love. This is not the end. This is good news that Paul would point this kind of stuff out to us. Would show us that our lives cannot continue in this way, but rather must line up with the gospel. We are to be terrified of this God and who he is, all-powerful. 
And at the same time, he rejoices or takes pleasure or delights in those who hope in his steadfast love. Can I just, can I just declare then his steadfast love? His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He gave his life so that we would not have to suffer for what we totally deserve. Our penalty he bore on the cross. God poured out the wrath on him so that we would not have to eternally be damned. He has given us new life in Jesus Christ. This is the steadfast love of Jesus Christ. This is why we meet this morning. This is the joy that we have, that although our lives even still, still may struggle with some of these things that we've seen today in this passage, there is grace as we repent of our sin and turn to him as Lord, as our God who cares deeply. The steadfast love of the Lord is far-reaching. That is not to say, like Romans 6, that we can just be like, hey, good, I can just do more sin and his grace abounds. No, that's to misunderstand who God is and to misunderstand your salvation. But rather, more like Romans 8, being willing to say, I want to crucify, I want to put to death, mortify the deeds of the body these wicked sins that are part of the old man because of what's happened to me in Jesus Christ. We recognize that we're declared righteous in our justification. We know that he has made us holy in Jesus. But as we sit here, we realize that Paul's words make sense to us because we're still learning and growing and fighting the battle against sin. And so we thankfully look to the steadfast love of our Lord. The warning is certainly clear, though. Sexual sin, false thinking about sex, and false talking about sex has no place among us, church. No one, none. So then, let's finish with this. What are we to do? What are we to do if, if you and I, I'm putting myself there, man, uh, if you and I have been guilty of any or every one of these sins, are we doomed? Is it over? You already, you already know the good news. No, praise God. You are not. Today is the day of salvation. And if you have accepted Christ, you know to return to the forgiveness that you know in Jesus Christ and to reject these things, to repent of your sin and to love the God of the gospel who's given himself. And that does mean that we turn from our sin, that we listen to Paul's words and say, yes, by the Holy Spirit's power, I will trust and, and try as much as I can by his grace not to continue in these things. I don't want to do any of this anymore. If a Christian's attitude is, well, it's inevitable. I'm going to sin these ways. Everybody does. Uh, you need to be really, really careful that you examine yourself that you are in the love of God because that's not a Christian attitude. Paul tells us that over and over again. So I, I call us to listen carefully to Paul. And, and, and if, he's, if this is right and you are a believer in Christ, repent and believe the gospel. The, the, the message is the same. Repent of our sin and look to Christ for our righteousness. And the Spirit's work for us to make us more like him. So uh, stop sexual sin. Stop. It's, it's that easy in one sense. I know it's not easy. I'm just saying that's what he's telling us. Stop it. Don't continue in these ways. Stop imbibing the world's philosophy of sex. Stop thinking that falsely about sex. And stop talking about sex in the wrong way too. Again, these are not my words. These are Paul's. I would go one step further. I, this is pastoral, so it's not like scripture but I would call you to consider what you regularly take into your ears and eyes. What kind of things shape you? What kind of music you listen to? What kind of movies you watch? What kind of shows you regularly watch? What kind of novels you read? These things, whether you know it or not, shape you. And the world, as clever as they are, cleverly tells us lies. So I love you. 
please don't listen to everything and take it all in and eat it all. Be discerning. Look at these things. And potentially don't, don't watch them. Don't listen to them. Some of these things are not right for you and they will actually destroy you. That's pastoral, I understand that. But stop talking and joking this way. Lastly, I just want to leave us with this. The way Paul tells, again, I said, I, he, I love what he does. He tells us what we're supposed to do in this situation is be thankful. Not only for sex, although we ought to be thankful for sex. We also ought to be thankful for pizza and thankful for lights and thankful for houses and th- all that stuff. But we recognize the most important structure on all of this, undergirding all of us, is that God has given us himself. And that is not only enough, but exceedingly abundant, above more than all that we could ask or even think of. This God can do and has done for us in Jesus Christ. So therefore, church, let us be thankful. Let's pray. Our God, we look to you. Oh God, please, please work in us. Make us more like Jesus. Give us real affections for you. I'm not talking about emotions. I mean like choosing to do what's right because we realize what you've done. Renew our minds by the word. I ask that you'd help so many today that are here with us in this room and then so many on live stream as well. Lord, that you'd grow the saints through the preaching of your word and through your Holy Spirit's work. Lord, give us faith and help us to honor you. We realize that we could never have done these things and you, Lord, take us from death and you made us alive in Christ. We glory in our salvation in Jesus Christ. But we ask for your power to continue on to put to death the deeds of the body and to obey. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for everything that we've been given in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.